The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the Law Offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue Ballou, what's going on? Trying to figure out the lighting. Yeah, is it working out? Well, it just never... It always seems like it's a little dark, but I think it's a little bit better. Yeah, no, now I think it's good. Now there's glare on my yeah, glasses. Yeah, now there's glare. What are you going to do? I, and I have anti-glare on my glasses. No, do so. you really? Yeah, no, it's glaring. It's Just glaring. a little, yeah. It's a little No, I can glaring. tell you're using a ring light. Because you could see the ring. Exactly, I can see the ring. Does it look stupid? Because no, you can see my glaring. Maybe if I, I could take my glasses off. Yeah, do it without it. glasses. There you there go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what do you think? I'm doing some scruff thing. What do you think? Can you see um, it? You know, it's funny because when you did the Movember thing, you were concerned that you couldn't grow hair. But uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, yeah, you see it? I see it. That's kind of yeah. scruff. Yeah, it's kind of like a, uh, a faux um, Miami Vice, Don Johnson. <laughs> there kind it of is. A- well, Juan says he likes it, so. Well, that's yeah. the most important that's thing. That's the most important thing. Who gives so, a shit what I, who gives a shit what I think? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I care, but not on this issue. So, uh, Sue, guess where we're going to be this weekend? Viva Oh, you're going to Vegas? Yeah. Are you going to go to the Sphere? We're going to the Sphere. You're going to see you too. So excited to see you two. The band of my lifetime. I love you two. I've seen him at one point. I saw him two nights in a row at the forum. That Mm -hmm. last tour was so good. So I'm really, really excited. And I pulled some information about the sphere. Everybody's heard about it by now, Uh, Mm -hmm. but there's some actual information about exactly what makes it so unique. So it's got a capacity of 18,000 people. Uh, It's 366 feet tall. 516 feet wide, and all the images are displayed in 18K on the world's largest LED screen, which is the size of four football fields, a whopping 164,000 surround sound speakers make up the audio system. Are you kidding me? So when you, th- when you say it's 18K, like your TV is what? 5K? 4K? 4K? I, I think I have a 4K. Yeah, 4 or 5K. It's like over four times better than my TV. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. So I, that's I exciting. I love you too. I've just always been an enormous U2 fan, and they're doing the Octung Baby album, which is a great one. It's got for me their best song of all time, which is One. Mm. I love One by U2. It's such a great song. Um, so so uh, what what do you do? What else do you do in Vegas? Do you gamble? Well, it's, we had an interesting dilemma. Which was, uh, we were looking for a hotel to stay at. And Juan's like, okay, let's try this one. It's a good price and all that. And then he reads the Yelp reviews and he sees, well, there was a murder in this hotel. Like what? Like recently? Three weeks ago. In the casino? No, in the hotel room. In a (gasps) hotel room, there was a murder three weeks ago. And the word dismemberment was used. Now, we had a big debate on this. We did not stay at the murder hotel. 
Would you stay at the murder hotel even if it was a really good deal? I, I think I'd have an issue because if there's one murder, there could be more. Correct. And plus, there could be body. You know, you find a finger Didn't, here. <laughs> hey, there's find, a finger in my suit. There's a, there's a toe under my mattress. <laughs> so um, did they find the person? Because if yes. he's at large, no, then he's, I'd be he's really caught. Concerned. He got busted. Okay. Um, and he it was after he dismembered his wife. So I'm like, I'm not going to stay there. We're going to go stay at a different hotel okay. where there was no murder that we know of. Uh, I'm sure most. Of, I'm sure most of those hotels have had a murder or two, right? I would think. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should just get over it. So, uh, anyways, the uh, the sphere on Saturday. Cannot wait for that. Um, one other thing I wanted to get to, Sue, and this is good for you. Okay. So, a uh, Chicago woman skydived from a plane, aiming for the world record as world's oldest skydiver. She is a hundred and four years old. Her name is Dorothy Hoffner, which sounds like the name of a 104-year-old, right? Dorothy Hoffner. Uh, she told a cheering crowd moments after touching the ground Sunday at Skydive Chicago in Ottawa, about 85 miles southwest of Chicago. The Guinness Book of World Records for oldest skydiver was set in May 2022 by 103-year-old Linnea Inegard Larson <laughs> from Sweden. But now hoffner has surpassed that she did her first skydiving jump by the way when she was 100 now she's doing it at 104 sue have you ever been skydiving no and i never will you never but, will no have you yeah really yeah i started tandem. well tandem right you had to go no with, no with... i did not go tandem how high were you this or, was how, a... or how high were you when yeah you how did... high was it no this is about 40 years ago now i guess Damn, I'm old. 40 years ago, it had been 1991 or something like that. And I was doing top 40 radio at 93 QWRQN in Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> and uh, so we did a bit, obviously. You know, you you wire yourself with a uh, cassette recorder and you actually record it on the way down. And the way I did it was a static core jump. So we're in this plane and they told me to climb out onto the strut of the plane. Do you know what the strut is? It's the thing that connects the wing to the plane. Mm -hmm. So cried out, cli uh, climbed out to the strut and they said, now just hold the strut. So there I am, I'm holding the strut as the plane is going. And uh, they said, okay, now go ahead and release, which I think meant jump. So I let go of the strut and a static cord pulled my parachute. So in other words, I can't screw it up. I know I, people do tandem jumps now, I did a solo jump that was a static core jump. So as you fell, it pulled the chute automatically. You just said you think that's what you were supposed to I think, do. Well, it worked out, so I guess it was right. How could you not know definitively that's what I'm supposed to do when you're jumping out of a plane? Just taking a guess. Taking my best shot. Now, why would you never skydive? Because I just, it's too scary. You're not ready to break the world record yet, but... You know, no, you look, if I was now, 104, I would do it because what do you got to lose? You're 104. Oh, so in other words, as you get older, you're more likely to go skydiving. Well, look, you know what? I am a, a, a bit of a baby when it comes to heights. Yeah. And anything where I think I can die. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. I, so I don't know if I'm a baby about dying, but yeah, that, that kind of stuff. Is real like like we talked about bungee jumping, even like that zipline stuff. Oh, ziplining is so much fun. No, thank you. Through the jungle in Costa Rica, I went ziplining. Mm -mm. 
skydiving, holding onto the strut, letting go, thinking it's the right thing to do. Bungee cord jumping I've done off a bridge. I don't even like bumper cars. Oh, really? You're still stuck on bumper cars? <laughs> yeah. Where is your sense of adventure? We should do this for the Culture Pop podcast. Let's, we'll go, we'll go skydiving. We'll have GoPro cameras on and we will be able to play the video on the Culture Pop podcast. What do you say? Let's go. Come you're going to have to, you're going to have to find my doppelganger. Oh, is that right? Just yes. no way, huh? No, no way. way. Mm -mm. Yeah, where's your sense of adventure? Well, I uh, like adventure I in other ways. Not, I should not mention, that. by the way, we got a great guest coming up. Uh, the movie is called Freud's Last Session. And the director, Matt Brown, and one of the stars, Matthew Good, who's, who is just a great, great actor, is going to be with us to talk about it here in a little while. Now, on that note, you had something that you wanted to throw out. Well, I figured since the story is, we're not sure whether, um, and, and people don't know the story, that Sigmund Freud um, had his last session with the writer C.S. Lewis. Right. That's the that's the theme of of the film. Correct. So, but it's fi it's a fictional meeting, to the best a, of our knowledge. It's a fictional meeting. Although I read that uh, Freud did have a meeting with a college professor. So oh, so that it, could be C.S. Lewis. It could have been, but no one can confirm it. Okay. Okay. So I thought. Um, who are pe are there people that that have died that you wish you could have met or you know or or hung out with for like a day and 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 had or even just had a conversation with so my first thought was my grandpa but it's supposed to be somebody that i don't well, know no, right well, well no i don't yeah well i i mean i said it's it's someone that you don't know but yeah i mean my grandpa i would love uh, we have a chair uh that my when i was a little little kid um, in Altoona, Pennsylvania, down in my grandparents' basement, they had a, a sort of a rocking chair. And I had it shipped out here after my grandmother died, and we had it totally recovered. And it looks really, really cool. My grandpa was just a dear guy. In fact, I have got the nameplate from his office door at Beasley Ford in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, that I keep on my, I don't know if I call it a shrine or an altar or whatever it is. I keep all the old stuff there. Um, mm -hmm. So my grandpa would be one of the people. The other would be Johnny Carson. Yeah. I met Carson one time. Here's how it went. Me, Tom Snyder, and Peter LaSalle are having dinner at an Italian joint in West Hollywood, right by the Beverly Center. And across the room, we see Johnny Carson. And I'm from across the room starstruck. I'm like, oh my God, that's Johnny Carson. That's king of the night. Um, and so Tom Snyder, and Peter LaSalle walked over to Johnny and had, had a conversation. And then Peter turned around and looked at me and said, Steve, come on over here. I want you to meet somebody. And I met Johnny Carson. It was unbelievable. But what I wouldn't do to pick Johnny Carson's brain about what makes a great talk show, what made him so unique and so special. Talk shows today are fine, but they're not about conversation anymore. Like I don't, no. Jimmy Fallon, you do your sketches and you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Colbert, do you do your politics? I, I just like a good conversation show. Right. Um, and that's, that's what I loved about Johnny Carson was he could talk to anybody and make it work. So Johnny okay. Carson would be my choice. My grandpa would be my other choice. What about you? Okay. Um, George Carlin is oh, one. Yeah. And, you know, we, we know his daughter, Kelly. Yep. Um, I just, you know, he just, just to be able, just his brain, just to be in, in a room with him and just talking about stuff. And he was a huge Mets fan. So I would have loved to have gone to a Met game 
with George. Wow, Carlin. how cool would that be? Yeah, I got to interview cool. him once on the phone at at ESPN. I don't remember the context of it. My dogs are going nuts right now. I don't know if you can hear them. Can you hear yeah. my dogs? Okay, good. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I, I did interview him one time, um, but I was very nervous about it and because he's George Carlin. Mm-hmm. But I, as I remember it, it went well, and he walked away. And he knew sports. That was yes. the thing about George yeah, Carlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anybody else on your list? Um, I would have loved to have, oh, you're talking about sports. I would have loved to have, uh, oh, well, he's actually still alive with a maze. I, would, <laughs> I, wish I, I, I wish I could have met him when, you know, when he was younger. But Groucho Marx. Oh, Groucho Marx. Because he's, you know, one of my all-time favorites. I mean, the Marx brothers were just genius. And, you know, I would love to talk to him because there's this, there's this famous story, and I'm not sure if it's, if it's accurate. Oh, then let's run with it. I would, no, I was told, or yeah. I had read, that um, the Marx Brothers had an interview, I think at Warner Brothers, at some big studio. Okay. And while they were in the uh, executive's office, they took all their clothes off. So when the guy walked in, they were all nude. Really? Oh, that's funny. But non- not verified. I don't know if it's true. I, I want to believe it's true. A lot I of stories, too. I it just sa- want to believe it's true. It sounds like something they would have done. It does. It does. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's great. So Groucho Marx and who was the other one? George Carlin. Who was the guy that's still alive that you wanted to meet? Willie Mays. Oh, Willie Mays. My dad met Willie Mays. Willie Mays. I have a picture of my dad with Willie Mays. Willie is not, I mean, he's 85, 86 years old now, I would say. Something like that. My dad, I got a picture of my dad and Willie Mays together. Um, but Willie was not not the uh, at least when we met him wasn't conversational yeah yeah uh willie mays is the reason why i love baseball because my oldest brother was a um was a, a new york giant fan and then he you know, became a san francisco giant fan and he loved willie mays so much and i love my brother so much i became like I, I didn't become a met fan until a little bit later um and my brother went to a um uh, a, a signing. My brother used to collect baseball cards. Okay. So he went to one of these card shows and Willie was there giving autographs and he was much younger. And my brother had a uh, San Francisco giant hat on and Willie Mays asked him to turn around because he wanted to see if it was the regular hat. It wasn't oh, the ra- as opposed to the trucker cap. Fit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Willie Mays probably, I mean, is he the greatest living base? Well, no, he's not anymore. Shohei Otani is the greatest living baseball player. Hmm. Do you disagree? Um, the guy I'm hit 50 sure. bombs and threw for a 315 earned run average this year. Yeah, yeah. But was, so Willie, Willie's, you know, his baseball record is, is insane. His defense was insane. Yes. And he stole bases. Yeah. But so, he didn't pitch like Shohei. He didn't pitch, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean Willie, Shohei is incredible. Oh, it's just it's and, and, so uh, crazy. And I hope he's a Met. Oh, he's definitely, I hope he's a Dodger. <laughs> All right. Uh, the brand new movie, Freud's Last Session, premiered at the AFI Film Festival. It tells the story of a fictional meeting between Sigmund Freud and author C.S. Lewis in London on the eve of World War II. The film is co-written and directed by Matt Brown. It stars both Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good, and we are lucky to have both director and one of the stars with us today. Matt Brown, Matthew Good, thank you so much for doing this, guys. 
Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so, thank you very much. We absolutely love the movie, Freud's Last Session. Um, it's based on the play written by Mark St. Germain. I, I'm curious from you, Matthew Brown, uh, how did this project get started? Did, did you see the play and think there's a movie there? Did one of your producers, how did it all come together? I was, as one of the producers, Alan Greisman and I had worked together on a project some, some years ago. Um, and it was actually an accident. He was at the coffee cart in Laurel Canyon at the Canyon store, like little spot. And he overheard my brother, uh, talking to Lily who runs the coffee cart. And they were talking about the music on my last film, which my brother did. And he was like, wait, I know your brother. And he ran to the trunk of his car and he pulled out the script and he jammed it in my brother's hands. He said, I didn't know this. Give this I to Kobe. This Alan, Alan Christman. So he, uh, so Kobe's like, here, Matt, here's a script. Alan wants you to read it. And, um, it was really, it was like a first draft wasn't even in final draft form, you know, of, um, the play that Mark was beginning to turn into a screenplay. And, um, it was a lot, it was, it was in similar territory to, um, my last film. I mean, in that it dealt with some bigger themes and everything. And I, um, I was a little hesitant and then, I mean, full disclosure, my father's a psychiatrist, um, as, <laughs> you know, and, um, but those themes, they kind of got their claws into me and, um, it's something that just stuck with me and I just kept coming back to it, um, and worked with Mark and trying to evolve it into a screenplay from a play, um, which was a long process. And it, this all took place over about five, five or six years, I guess you'd say. and. Um, it was something that uh you know i was also drawn to it i i the the um the world had kind of gone mad at that time and everyone was really politically divisive and i thought well this must be a phase by the way um, i'm glad that's over the divisiveness i'm glad we've i'm going really timely or not you know and then you know so it it really it just um it just cried out to me to say, Hey, this is a different point of view where people actually can hear a different point of view. And I was excited by something that would allow people to consider a different point of view and think and talk maybe even, um, which has turned into a novel idea. But, um, so that, that's where it, that's where it, I think the Genesis was for me. I didn't see the play, um, originally, um, and I read it, um, but, uh, it was all based also on a, on a, book, uh, Question of God uh, by Armin Nikolai. That's what the play was based on, who taught a class up at Harvard uh, for about 35 years. It was um, a, a course that dealt with um, Freud as an atheist, and then they eventually wanted a counterpoint. So they they picked C.S. Lewis, um, who he found out that a younger Don had a, a meeting with um, Freud towards the end of his life. And um, there was some connections, I, enough connections that he thought it actually could have been Lewis. So he tried that angle, and that, and that's when the course just took off. And, I was going to uh, say it was insanely popular, wasn't it? It really was, actually. Yeah, yeah. It really was, and I think Mark did a magnificent job of um, turning it into a play, and then, um, and then we began the task of trying to turn it into the screenplay. What I found interesting, just reading up about C.S. Lewis and Freud. C.S. Lewis, I read that when he was in his teens, he was an atheist and then found Christianity later. Yes. Yeah, I mean, very much so. I mean, he was baptized and he was obviously born in Belfast. And religion is, you know, as a child is sort of thrown upon you. But due to everything that he went through, I mean, obviously, 
post his mother dying, his father classically being a kind of, you know, Victorian standoff, unemotional and angry whenever the kids were making noise, that kind of father sent them off to England. Because that's what you do when kids are grieving, um, <laughs> and, and he, you know, and he kind of eventually said, you know, that he wrote. It was a really fascinating memoir that he wrote in 1955, which doesn't cover his entire life, but certainly some of the earlier stuff. And it's called "Surprised by Joy," and he talks of how effectively it was more traumatic going to boarding school in England than it was than it was fighting trench warfare in World War One. <laughs> right. Was, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. But yeah, he did. So, I mean, so due to the nature of, a, of all these sort of unfairnesses and, and, and what a mind this man had, I mean, he, 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 he turned his back on it. But he was then to come back to it. I mean, post-World post War I, and losing his best friend in the trenches and then obviously becoming a, a, a professor at Magdalen and, and then meeting similar like minds, like obviously the, uh, you know, just the author of Lord of the Rings, um, becoming his friend. They had spectacular and great debate, and they can. They were like, "Well, don't you know?" And you know, they 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 gently leaned him towards becoming at least a theist. Yes. <laughs> and, then, mm -hmm. and then he had this epiphany one day. I mean, he studied it, and he came up with this sort of what what is sort of known. I mean, it's the same kind of thing that I think Paul the Apostle was preaching about, which is, and he was sort of one of the first Christian apologists. Apologists becoming from the Greek apologia, which means to speak in defense of, obviously. So. So, but his thing, but if you, if you want to whistle it down to a nutshell, it's like Lewis was like, well, if you, if you analyze it, there's only three options. One is that he was mad. One is that he was bad. And one is that he was the son of God. So those are your things. Yeah. And when you like that and you kind of look at the material and you kind of go, well, uh, it seems to make quite a lot of sense. So let's strike off the mad. He doesn't. He, the only thing is, is that he would be doing it because he's devious and deceitful and he wants to draw something out of it. But I don't really remember him having much money. In fact, I do remember him having to rub a couple of fish together and some loads. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you kind of go, well, maybe he was the son of God. I don't know. I haven't done my own analysis yet. But, um, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and, then so he, and, he, and he, he became, what I love is that he, when, what was his epiphany? His epiphany came on a journey to Whipsnade Zoo. <laughs> wow huh. yeah. wonderful so uh who's the other guy in the movie like i know matthew you're in it but who's the uh -huh. other the other guy <laughs> this this young up-and-comer uh what what was your this first thought you, that is so yeah what was your first thought when you found out hey i'm i'm going to be sharing scenes with anthony hopkins i cried <laughs> i'd had a very tough year the previous year which i won't go into but i was not particularly well and and um and it was and I have to thank Matthew for, I was very lucky this film kept getting put back um, due, to, due to, well, that happens in many films. But, but so when, when, when this news, I mean, bearing in mind, when I first, taught, I first got hold of this part, weirdly, was, the reason it happened was because Joel Lubin, who's my agent at CAA, and has been for sort of 17, 16 years, um, he was like, hey, you'll never guess what, I'm starting to represent uh, Anthony Hopkins. And I was like, no way that's awesome mate that's amazing how did that happen blah 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 and he goes and by the way there's a script that tony's kind of circling he's kind of interested in blah blah, blah. And i was like brilliant what is it he goes and there may be a part for you but then he went but it's highly unlikely <laughs> <laughs> well no well, faith no faith well, hey hey fine and then he's gonna make the script and he goes 
don't don't forget it's very very unlikely that you're going to get this part and i was like well positioned <laughs> yeah and, so, and these things just stay and then like and then you get to the point where you go it is probably highly unlikely that i get the part and then i got a phone call saying they've offered it to you and then i cried wow wow, wow. Oh, I <laughs> not for long but you know yeah you know, <laughs> so, so Matthew Brown, how do you even direct Anthony? I mean, he's Anthony Hopkins. He's teaching master classes and this kind of stuff, right? How, how do you approach directing somebody like Anthony Hopkins? I mean, I didn't have much chance to even think about it because when <laughs> he signed on, he jumped in so full heartedly into it that he just began to engage with me creatively. I I've said it, like I'll continue to say it to everyone who will listen to that. He's maybe the most creatively generous person I've ever met. Um, and so he, he really engaged in it in a way that I've, you know, I, I, I had no idea that this legend, this, you know, I mean, I, I was fully anticipating just leave me alone, kid. I'm going to go do what I do. And it was, it couldn't have been further from that. And it was, um, well, that was me. That was, <laughs> <laughs> you were just, you were just brilliant. Matthew is absolutely brilliant in this film. Was, but you're so right. He's the most generous. Yeah. You saw, I don't know why, actually, when you think about it though, it's bizarre that you would think that he would be sort of, I'm going to do my own thing, blah, 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 because he's, he's a man of originally from the theater and, and like, he's a, he's a man of a company. He's, he's brilliant in company. So it's to, to think that you would have anything other than generosity is bizarre, but, but it's, I think it's just the fear of working yeah. with someone who has been incredible for 60 years. Yeah, that that's right. And, yeah. and we, I think we all learned a lot on it. I mean, I, I mean, probably, I mean, I certainly did. Uh, it was, um, it was really exciting. And that sounds like a cliche, but exciting and fun. It was just, it was a joyous experience. We had about three weeks where we were shooting all the dialogue scenes in the, um, in Freud's, um, office, which was this beautifully designed set by Luciana Rigi, who actually had worked with Hopkins on Remains of the Day and Howard's End mm. many moons earlier. And actually Hopkins was returning to the stage for the first time, this exact stage, 50 years later after doing, um, yeah. The, um, Lion and Rinta. Winter. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was all this incredible sort of reunion happening. It was a very magical couple of weeks where, I mean, I was pretty heartbroken when we had to leave the stage and then go actually go to work. But it was, um, it, so yeah, it was a fully engaging, fully um, creative, amazing um, experience to, and I wouldn't say direct, that's just, to me, it's a weird word to say, but to be part of this process with the, with the um, actors on it, it was amazing. So ironically, uh, Anthony Hopkins played C.S. Lewis in Shadowlands. Yeah. You mean, Matthew, the, I mean the elephant in the room. Well, no, but, 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 but what I'm, what I'm curious, curious about, did you yeah. guys have any conversation as actors since he played the role that you were playing did you did you did he talk to you about it at all or, or well, did you ask questions you know what you think that we would but actually we i mean they, like tony like initially early on he's like well you know i just uh i just sort of did my own thing with him you know i just did my own thing with it and i was like and, and you should too and i was like all right tony cool and that was kind of all that came out and actually you know i mean you do what 
I can, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not born in his body. He's not born in mine. We look differently. And, and I don't think anyone, that's the funny thing about when you play someone real who's that famous, but actually no one really knows what he looks like. I kind of looked a little bit like him when he was in his twenties. I think Brownie, didn't I? Oh, you definitely did. Actually. Then, but we don't have a lot of, of the photography, but I mean, vocally, when you listen, there was, there was, I think five or six of these lectures that he gave in 1939 and through the war, which actually made him very famous prior to his to his Narnia stories. It's much more famous from the radio first. So they got wiped, but there's one remaining, and it's on YouTube. And when you listen to it, it's great for me because you, you can pick up the rhythm and, and you can hear and you have, you have quite a deep voice. But actually sort of spoke with a little bit like this. Um, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> but but i can but i can pick up there's, there's enough in there that you can go okay there's there's stuff there's that you know little there's little there's a bread trail which can take me somewhere which is fascinating and and i guess also i mean which i never wanted to say to tony <laughs> i never wanted to say to him, was the fact that after you do a deep dive you realize that tattoo lands possibly isn't or didn't let truth get in the way of a good story ah uh. Because Joy seems like she was, from several sources, was actually a bit of a, I was, for want of a better phrase, a money-grabbing hoe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> want of a better phrase. I don't know. That's very unfair because I think Douglas Gresham, who I also, in fact, got some detail out of in this wonderful little video I found, would find that abhorrent that I said about his mother, so I don't need that. But but that she was... Anyway, let's get out of that one. But, yeah, um, we'll get out of that. Hey, I got a question. So I'm a reasonably smart guy. That's what they say about me. Um, but I, I, get that. I, yeah, get that. I, I think that the theme of a forest and a deer, starting with the toy forest and then the vision repeats multiple times, what, yeah. what's going on in your director's head? What's going on in your actor's head when it comes to that deer and that forest? Oh, do you want to get Barney or shall I? You go. I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> so one of the funny things about, I'm not funny. But it all sort of starts with C.S. Lewis's childhood, okay? So he was obsessed, in a way, with anthropomorphic stories because he was, he was obsessed with Beatrix Potter. So he wrote, at the age of sort of five or six, this, this, he made up a world called Boxen. Hmm. And, it, and it was, he wrote many stories about it. It was incredibly advanced thinking from a, from a child. And, 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 he, and these stories were, you know, they were long. And, and anyway, so I think that... That present that came from Warney, his brother, the box, mm -hmm. had this, it created this effect on him. And he was always obsessed with nature. He was always looking out of the window and what's, and in, in Ireland and these incredible views. He was very, very passionate about nature. It affected him. And it, and it set in story that there must be something more. There must be something more. Ah, yeah. Necessity for, because it also, there's that, I mean, he talks about it later, this, this, and, and it's what we all have in us. I mean, does this soul that we all possess, does this knowledge of what, is, what we know is right and what we know is wrong, where does that come from? Is that 400 million years of evolution of us starting as a lobster? Or is it because of God? Now, wherever you fall on those divides, it's still a very interesting question. And, and, and we later on, later on, he starts to, you know, he, gets, he loves mythology and he loves what he calls northernness these northern Scandinavian tales that move him so completely. And it's the beauty of the nature. And it, and it brings him back once again, which is why his atheism changes. And he calls it joy. He gives mm. it a name. 
and it's joy. And it's hence surprised by joy being a wonderful name for his, his memoir in 1955. Hmm. And, and it's sort of quite complex, but it, I guess, I, I guess it's what Freud would say. It's a, the never ending search for a father figure. And, you know, I think he didn't ever have a father figure. So that's just immediately interesting. And, and quite threatening to Lewis because he knows that when he, that he knows going into when, when he goes in there, that it's kind of going to become a kind of therapy and that anything he reveals, Freud's going to go, aha, I told you. <laughs> Matthew, does that, the, the deer and the four, that there's something more. I mean, I, I was questioning it myself at, at a certain point. Like, am I going too far with this deer? But this deer performed. I've never seen a deer like this in my life. We, is there anyone who hit, the, hit a mark on the entire show? <laughs> <laughs> no CGI. And we had no independent film. We don't have a lot of money. There's no, you know, visual effects the way, you know, there was a lot that we had written in that we would have been in. It was so much. We had a brilliant cinematographer named Ben Smithard. And we really found a way to shoot everything in camera. But when we shot that deer, I mean, it did those movements, all that stuff. It, it just did it in those moments. I'm like, this is too strange to be happening here this way. I, I'm just going to yeah. go with it. And then it just kept going. And then we're, we're on the battlefield where we've just shot a giant World War I scene in a day and a half because Ben Smithard is a genius. And I don't know how we pulled that off. Um, but in the middle of it, I was like, Ben, I, I just, I got the deer. He's like, really, Matt? You want to pull the deer in right now? We have like no <laughs> time. I'm like, yeah, I want the deer and I want the mirror. He goes, you want a beer? I'm like, I would want beer too. <laughs> right now, Ben. <laughs> I drag the poor deer out into the middle of the battlefield. Okay. And then I, I get this mirror with Ben and it's this long, giant, like 10 foot mirror and it bends. And I have them pull that in the middle of the battlefield. He's like, do you think this deer is going to do its thing with the mirror right now? And I'm like, it's going to do it. I promise you. And it did it. And wow. it was like, Okay, this is going in the movie. Best supporting oh, deer, right? If you, if you think about it, if you think about it, also there's sort of subtle allegory in its own weird and wonderful way of the fact that at the beginning we've got these, we've got these children getting onto onto trains, being transported out. That obviously in real life, Lewis is going to take in some children and then be inspired to write Narnia. But one of the things that I found fascinating when I watched the film, and I still haven't seen the the, the final cut, but like, is there sort of like an and I don't even know how you, if, if this is even a word, but Aslanic tendencies mm. to that deer. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I've, I find it very moving, like very moving. And it feels sort of, you know, yeah, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it was a strange thing to happen too, because we were shooting really fast um, some pickups in Lewis's house where we were, um, we had brought some art department stuff with us. We were doing these some um, insert shots of uh, the the, the uh, shroud or some other yeah. stuff like that. And I, I'm going, I'm shooting them all. I'm like, just something's missing. And I turn around, and there's a there's this um, beautiful painting of a deer. Mm. It was like, <laughs> and we shot the deer right there. It was just there. It was just waiting to be. I mean, of all the paintings to be in this one room, and and then it just, yeah, it was very strange. Wow. Yeah. So funny, you know, you talk about the deer just like being a great actor. When I first moved out to L.A. from New York, I, I, did, I did stand up and I was talking about how I never trust anything I see in L.A. You know, like I, you know, like I see a deer and it's like, is it a deer or is it someone dressed as a deer? You know, and then you look over and the deer is like hanging out with it by a trailer smoking a cigarette, you know. <laughs> That's you my just... kind of deer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm, 
No, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, this is uh, such an eerie time that this story is set in because it is, li- I think Chamberlain has officially declared war on the Nazis and the bombing is, ha- and to me that, that sort of environment plays, plays a role in this thing because it's sort of hanging over everything. You know what I mean? Good, good. I hope so. Yeah, that was the, that was fully the intention. I mean, I wanted it because I, I think it really mirrors today on so many levels. I mean, I, we are truly, we're right there in this like darkest hour of its own own kind and i hope i hope things i hope dialogue happens and diplomacy happens and things happen that avoid what they went through um and maybe people learn from some mistakes but i'm not entirely optimistic but try to be yeah yeah so like whenever a movie is adapted you know from from truth i always wonder what you know how much of the dialogue is real or imagined and there was one a uh, moment where uh, Freud and, uh, Freud and uh, C.S. Lewis were talking, and um, C.S. You, Matthew, your character is uncomfortable talking about something personal, and he wants to. He cuts him off. He says, "You know, I don't want to talk about my personal personal life." And Freud says, "I consider what people tell me far less interesting than what they choose not to tell me." Mm. Yeah, so it's a good move from him. It's like it's actually. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you can't win either way. You can, either, you can I'll, I'll, I'll gather more information from you by not wanting to tell me about it. So, I mean, yeah, which in a way makes is another way of him saying, so you just might as well keep talking. It's a clever yeah. move. Clever move. Yeah, yeah. No, just because I, I've been in therapy and I, it made me think. I'm sure that's what a lot of therapists must think. Yeah, you yeah, know, of course. I mean. Yeah. It's true, and I think I, I think that's the thing. He's you know he's gone he's gone around to this legendary figure's house, you know, and because he thinks he's upset him because he's 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 mocked him in in Pilgrim's Regress, and he's like, I'm going to go around probably for wrists a wrist slapping and probably a bit of a chat, and then I'll I'll bugger off back to her, I'll bugger off back home again on the train, and he's come in and there's this alternate idea in our movie anyway. Uh, and he's like, oh my God, okay, oh, th- so this is what you want. And it's actually, it made me think of my father. It's so funny to think of what is Freud's intention there? Hmm. And part of it, I think, is the fear of death. My own father never, we never went to church. We were like, you, we had CV on our passport, Church of England on our passport. You're right. Went, I mean, I sang in the choir at school, but that was, it maybe went to a Christingle service. And that's it. And I only like going then because we got some sweets. Um, but my, <laughs> when my father was dying, which was many years ago now, 20 years ago, and I went, died far too young. That's a whole nother story. But I walked, I came back from university one day and I was like, what the, f- what's the vicar doing in our, in our house? Well, that's weird. <laughs> Mum was like, dad's, dad's talking to him. And mm. I think, I think it's a natural reaction to kind of like, got to have all the bases covered. And I think it's like, I don't, it's like, I want the debate. He wants the debate at least. I think actually he wants to, he wants to have almost a voice piece to, to God through, through Lewis in a way, if, if he does exist, just to tell him how much he hates him and the unfairness of life and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think he's entirely convinced at the end, but it's say it's these two great minds of the 20th century coming together and having formal debate, sometimes emotional and finding that area that small part of the Venn diagram where actually they had a lot more in common than they thought. 
Where did they have a lot in common? With their childhoods and how their father, how their fathers were, um, and they both branch off into these. Into the, I mean, I think by the end, if you look at modern psychology and what the Bible is teaching, there's a lot more in common with. Hmm. Like it's all about if you talk your truth, then you will be set free, and that works for modern. I like. I mean, it's like if you stop lying to yourself and if you live in a way that is. Give money to the poor, teach, try to, you, like, just doing small things have sort of butterfly effect. Way. Like, if, if you're good to your wife and your children, then your next circle of attention can be for your village, and then your next circle of attention can be to your city. It's why Jeff Bezos is a massive disappointment as a billionaire right now, because he isn't building any hospitals, hmm. but he's going on a, a rocket, which yep. is awesome. Build a hospital for mental health in LA, please. We could do with one. I say we. You guys could do with one. <laughs> Even if you're filling it with actors. <laughs> <laughs> well, there'd be a lot. <laughs> but we need people to pay back. And so, I don't know. I mean, whether you believe in God or not, the Bible and most literature around the world, geographically, everyone's got a, another God. Christianity obviously seemed like it was a bit late to the party. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have said, thou shalt worship no other God. No false me. idols. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> so sure. Matthew Brown, that's a, you know, this is an argument about the very nature of life. Is there a God? Or is there not a God? I mean, Lewis says there is a God and man doesn't have to be an imbecile to believe in him. And Freud says the concept of God is a ludicrous dream. So there is a continuum here. Where, how does this filter through your mind? What's your perspective on the idea or the concept? Yeah, this is a little question I'm throwing out there. What's, what, how do you view the idea of God? Well, I, first I just want to say I wanted, I wanted the film to present in a way that everybody could make up their own minds about the film where I wasn't, where I wasn't dictating a, a point of view necessarily. I mean, I, and I try to keep that separate, but I mean, I guess this isn't taking a side necessarily, but I, I, I feel like human evolution is sort of um, somewhat dependent on on science and religion um, not being um, polarized from one another, not being enemies. I mean, it, I, I said it a few times now that to anyone will listen, but like it goes back to Descartes, you know, when all of a sudden science and religion had to be different, like just enemies. And I I don't feel like they have to be. Uh, there's a I I keep saying i'm going to butcher the quotes i keep butchering. yeah there is a line from the movie that i can't i can't quite put my finger there's, uh, here's one that wasn't in the movie which is the albert einstein says that um science um without religion is lame and and that um religion without science is blind right um, that's mm -hmm. einstein and i i feel pretty strongly that um that there is I don't know. I don't. I don't think they have to be enemies, and that there there might be. I mean, we'll, we'll look what we're going into with quantum physics right now. I mean, it's yeah. it's. It, I think there's a lot that we still have to learn. We're 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 in the nascent stage here, and if we get out of the nascent stage, I think it's still a question mark. But I think we're going to learn a lot more. We just don't know. I mean, Tony kept saying to me the whole time, and I loved it. He goes, "We don't freaking know. We don't know." Um, he didn't use freaking, but <laughs> we just don't know. Nobody knows, you know, and that's. That's kind of, and, and to what Matthew was saying, it's kind of his character in this is intellectually curious, and he is at the end of his life looking at his mortality, and he draws this person in here to, he wants he wants to be proven wrong. He wants to hear another side, another point of this argument, but I guess it's that um, 
I don't know. I think they're they're similar people because they're both intellectually curious to me. Yeah. And I think that intellectual curiosity is being kind of um, outlawed in this society at the moment. And I, I, I think that in terms of God and and science or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, there may be they may they might actually have more in common science and and God in the end than we even know. And and to just write it off is maybe maybe not the smartest. I just so. remember that quote, think, Matthew Good, which is which is that intellectual curiosity is coming back, and because we're being let down so much by by our, by political leadership, I think it's coming back, and it's coming back due to now. Not non-linear television, but it's coming back to long-form interviews. I mean, God, I even I watch on. I mean, I don't. I still not sure what to make of the man, but but he's 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 so smart. I mean, he's incredibly book smart, Jordan Peterson. Mm. I mean, so I've seen I've seen some stuff with him recently, and I've seen him in debating on stage. And people are. This is a time for serious diplomacy and serious people and and serious intellect because. We're being let down, as I say, by leadership. That's right. I don't need to go and don't need to bang on about it. It's very, 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 very obvious. We have there's plenty of countries around the world that have tyranny, and we have we have people that, people are being put into power who are very easily manipulated and and also practically brain dead. And it's a national embarrassment for let's just say several countries rather than yeah okay. Um, well, they're in the face of that right now, just as they were in this film, and I just. Yes! Think- it's, it's again, it's like the circularity of action of history. It's like, when are we going to learn? In those times, it feels like that the extremes on both sides take over and, and they, they take common sense and they just flush it. And it's just sad. And it's, um, but that's why history, we call it history, history and dialogue. History. <laughs> yeah. But like history and, um, not history and science and religion is like left and right wing. Right. Like, they need each other. Man. They need each other yeah. to, 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 they need to coexist. It's great. And let that keep going. Oh, it's not guys. just the science. It's not just the science. It's just not the science. I, I think that's, that is the disparity is it's the, it's the different religions as well. You yeah. know, I, I grew up Jewish and, and I remember my father, um, completely disregarding any guy that I wanted to date who wasn't Jewish and not even knowing the person. And then I'd go to my friends' houses, you know, who were, who were Gentile and, and my boyfriend's parents, they just loved me because they knew me. They got to know me and it had nothing to do with me being Jewish. So, yeah, you know, that's a yeah, big Yeah, I issue. think the line from the movie that I was thinking of is, God makes room for science, but science doesn't make room for God. Doesn't make room for religion. R- religion, yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And there's a continuum and there are, yeah, I, I totally, totally get that. Listen, the movie's fantastic. Um, absolutely love it. It's coming out, uh, December 24th, I think, no, 22nd, 22nd. Yeah. Right before Christmas. And, uh, we are very, very excited to have you guys on the show. Matthew Good, Matthew Brown, congratulations on the movie. And thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It was so kind of love us. There you have it, Matthew Brown, Matthew Good, and uh, yeah, I mean, this movie makes you think. It's it a, it's does. It's a think piece, and you know, I was trying to get at it. You know, I grew up Catholic. I gave that up. I'm still spiritual. Uh, mm-hmm. I still believe in God, but I don't 
believe in my Catholic roots anymore. And you, where are you on the God issue? Yes, no, maybe. But let's simple it down to yes, no, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, there you go. There is a maybe. I Classic just, agnostic. Uh, well, just the idea that there's some supreme being, like one supreme being somewhere, I just, it's so intangible to me. It's hard for me to grasp. What I was taught is, and this is uh, through my church, which is Agape International with uh, my minister, Reverend Dr. Michael Beckwith. He likes to say that, this is podcast material, God, throw, God flows through, as, and with you, but it is everywhere. You know, remember the Father Guido Sarducci bit on Saturday Night Live where he said, here's everything you're going to remember after you finish high school. And one of the things was, where is God? God is everywhere. That's sort of my minister's ideas. God's everywhere, through, as, everyone, every place simultaneous. So are we, is God in us? Yeah, absolutely God's in us. Okay. So, so what does that mean that he's, he's in you, he, you know, it, and it's, and is he a he? <laughs> no, no, says, it's a, it's I he. think it's, a, it's for it's me, she. it's a power, it's a force, it's an right. energy, it's a universal intelligence or it's love or it's whatever you want to call it, uh, 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 peace, all those things apply. But I think there's an energy that flows through everything that links us together in a real way. Right. Cause I think that there are a lot of people who think that it is like, like, like Jesus, the son of God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's Jesus a whole, was that's a super the, smart dude. Right. And, uh, and was, was, had brilliant thoughts. I don't, he wasn't necessarily, at least for me, a savior. He yeah. was a teacher. Right. Right. Oh my God. And it's all, it's all bastardized anyway. Don't we know? have a rule? No religion, no politics on the show. I think we both, well, we, just, we break both but, of them. Well, we did because the subject matter of this film yeah, you know, exactly. warrants this yeah. conversation. So. Totally. totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's wrap this sucker up. Hey, thank you to Matthew uh, Good and Matthew Brown uh, for doing that. Uh, it is a great movie. It comes out just before the holidays this year. Anthony Hopkins, Matthew Good in Freud's last session. If you are watching right now, please click click the sub, uh, sub, subscribe button. That's what I meant to say, the subscribe button. Leave us a rating and a review on YouTube. You can also get us on, um, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Again, five-star rating and a review. We really appreciate that. Uh, thank you everybody for watching and for listening. We appreciate you, Sue. Great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.